you have a Bible, you can turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Continuing our reading through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 40. We'll take as our Old Testament reading, Genesis 40, verses 1 through 23. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbaker and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream in each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Thus far the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mountain, perhaps one of the most famous teachings in all of Scripture. And the narrative resumes in chapter 5, verse 1, we read, 
that he saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he delivers a long sermon there in which he showcases his excellencies, uh, surpassing Moses, surpassing Solomon as a teacher, one with an authority uh, which surpassed the greatest men in Israel and certainly the teachers at the time. And following this teaching, we read this morning, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. I invite you to join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, it's too wonderful to consider that you were near to the lowly as we sang that you draw near to the outcast and the one who is broken and despised. These things are hard for us, Lord, um, and yet wonderful at the same time. And so as we consider this morning our King, your Son, the one who was pleased to draw near, uh, to lay his hands, uh, to speak these words, uh, to demonstrate in word and in power that there has never been anyone like him. For there is no one like you, O Lord. Father, we would see Jesus this morning through the eyes of faith. Help us, O Lord. Do what only you can do, Father, oppressing this truth upon our hearts and encouraging us in the excellencies of who you are. Humble us, O Lord, that we may know your nearness. For this we ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, some nights sneak up on you as a parent. Uh, all is quiet. Uh, you're asleep. It's the middle of the night. When all of a sudden, you're awakened by a cry. A cry coming from your child's room. You make your way to the cry in the dark and the still of the house and you find that your child has gotten sick. Mm. And make no mistake, you are not at your best. You are foggy-headed, mildly irritable, and confused. But there is your child, a miserable mess, 
and there is now considerable work to be done. They need a bath. They need a change of clothes. They need their bedding to be changed. And even more than the tasks which present themselves to you, they need comforting. Think about that. Not only do you have to plunge yourself into a dirty job at 2 o'clock in the morning, the Lord calls you to do it with a tenderness and a compassion that is necessary for the situation. I've heard this story several times. I trust it's familiar to you. We've lived this story in my family several times. The story always goes the same way, remarkably. Sound asleep, crying child, parents come, and they clean, and they comfort the child. I've never heard it otherwise. I've never heard the story go differently. The pitiable cry, the concerned parents, the willingness to cleanse, the tenderness, and the compassion. It's remarkable that that takes place like the world over. Christ has already affirmed something of that to us. You, being evil, know how to give your children good gifts. That's God's kindness, beloved. That's God's kindness. It's lovely, isn't it? I mean, in the moment, it's not that lovely if you're the parent, but stepping back, the scene itself is lovely. When the parent comes and they see the miserable child and the mess, it is not revulsion. They don't turn around and shut the door and try to block out the image and go back to sleep. Nor is it compassion from afar, but sort of remaining in the doorframe, saying, how sad for you. Good luck with that. And then you go back to bed. This morning we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, the King who is mighty and willing to save. Matthew opens this section of his gospel, chapters 8 and 9, with a wonder that's going to set off a series of wonders. It has some similarities to that nighttime sequence. He's journeying when suddenly a pitiable cry interrupts him. But there is a certain sense in which his response is different from the parents. Christ's response in mercy exceeds that of the parents because there is a freedom in Christ's mercy which highlights the supreme excellency of his person and his work. He demonstrates the mercy of the true father, but he does so as one who freely and willingly goes out of his way to take an interest in a ruined and lost sinner. That's certainly suggestively presented for us in verse one, when he came down from the mountain, he comes down, he descends, he Khan descends. Now we've already seen how that detail picks up the narrative structure from Matthew 5, where in the story he ascends the mountain, sits down, and so the story resumes and he comes back down from the mountain. But let's not miss the larger point 
that he has descended, beloved, from an inconceivable height to be in this moment. And it's not just the mountain. Beloved, this is the eternal Son of God. This is the Son of the Most High. And here he is, conversing with a pitiable wretch in tenderness and compassion. John Calvin highlights for us that there's a wonder here in that Jesus Christ touches the leper. We're going to see something of that wonder here in a minute. But Calvin wants us to make sure that we don't miss the more excellent wonder in that we're dealing here with the eternal Son of God who has taken upon himself our nature, beloved. And that in that fact, the mercy and the grace and the love of God at cost has been made known. In other words, our God shows himself both willing and mighty to save. It struck me that that's what this passage presses home. That's what the Father wants us to know. The maker, the creator, the high and exalted one wants us to know that there is no guilt so great, no corruption so strong, that the cleansing power extended in mercy in Jesus Christ cannot atone and restore. Matthew Henry puts it that way. There is no guilt so great. There is no corruption so strong. There is no defilement so heinous that Christ's mercy and power cannot overcome it. Church, have you lost wonder at that? Have you lost the wonder at that? It'd be tempting to simply put that in the long ago past and think that somehow now your transactions with God take place on a different paradigm altogether. Make no mistake, beloved. We are all of us, Isaiah, in the presence of the Holy One. I don't care if you've been walking with God for a minute or for a lifetime. You have every reason to say in the presence of the Holy One, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man who lives amongst the people of unclean lips. And yet he reaches out and he cleanses to make a place for you in his presence. Beloved, do not lose the awe. That's not something that happened to you once upon a time, beloved. It is the heart of your communion with God. So consider with me this morning our need for cleansing, Christ's willingness to cleanse, and our thank-filled worship. First, our need for cleansing. The exchange really begins in verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him, 
and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. We know nothing about this man. We know no name, no history. We don't know how long he's been in this condition. We have a sense that it's been this way for a while. There's a certain desperation. There are other details that both Matthew and Luke give us about this exchange that Matthew doesn't have, which is quite interesting. Matthew's account is rather spare compared to the other two accounts. The other two accounts profile both the emotional life of the man and, interestingly, the emotional life of Jesus in this exchange, but not Matthew. But you do get a sense that there's a certain desperation in the man. Perhaps we might surmise that it's a man who's been in this condition for quite some time. And yet, this report has gone forth that there's one who heals lepers. Go back to Matthew chapter 4 and you get a summary of Jesus' ministry in the land of Galilee as one who goes about teaching and who is healing as well. It's a report got to this man somehow in, in hope, faith, he comes. Leprosy is strange for us. Leprosy seems to cover a variety of skin diseases or disfigurations, not strictly what we know to be leprosy today, which is, I believe, called Hansen's disease. I'm not 100% sure. When you encounter medical terms and commentaries, you should definitely not make too strong a claim because they don't know anything either, <laughs> at least not in that field. But from what I could understand from the literature, leprosy covers broader diseases and disfigurements than what today is known strictly as leprosy, certainly included that. But the important thing to note is that while the disease itself could be unspeakably awful, it's not so much the disease that's the concern. It's the state of being unclean. You hear that even in the man's response, don't you? If you will, you can not heal me. You can make me clean. He uses a different word. He doesn't say heal. He's not treating this as a disease. He's treating this as a defilement. Now that's strange for us, right? Clean, unclean. If you've read Leviticus, you can read Leviticus 13, 14, all about this particular disfigurement and the reality of being rendered unclean by it and what that entailed. But unclean in and of itself is kind of strange for us, isn't it? It's closest don't laugh, it's closest to our notion of gross. I mean that. We do have a notion of gross. And that would have been similar to what the notion of unclean communicated. Maybe you've experienced the notion of gross. I get to experience the notion of gross frequently. Interestingly, it happens usually when my mother-in-law comes. She always arrives right after I finish a workout. (laughs) And I go up to her and I say, Mom, so nice to see you. (laughs) She does not return my embrace. Mm. She says, get away from me, you're gross. (laughs) If you've ever returned from exercising, workout, or just working somewhere, you come back and you are gross, unclean. Don't sit on that, my wife says. Don't touch me, my mother-in-law says. And I get it. Like, I I get it. But if you squint, it's offensive. Because it's like, 
It's just me, right? He's like, no, no, it's your sweat. It's like, well, my sweat is me. Like, it's just me. It's not like I went out and I rolled around in a muddy puddle because I'm trying to rip some bees off of some honey. It's Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) He rolls around in a muddy puddle. It's not an external filth. I exert myself and then myself manifests itself. And then my mother-in-law says, you're gross. Get away from me. I hope you're all pitying me right now. (laughs) Unclean. Not fit for society. Get out. Don't touch anything. We can laugh about that, but that would have been the reality. And if that's what's being communicated to you, because of who you are, as it were. Make no mistake. Like, I mean, there are times when leprosy is tied very immediately to sin. That's true. There was a sense in which leprosy and God's judgment would have been understood as part and parcel. But if you look at the laws governing clean and unclean, women were unclean for a quarter of their life simply because of menstruation. The reality that it's seeking to communicate is that there's something deep within us that's problematic. That this isn't just some sort of external reality. There is a deeply embedded problem. Death is at work in us, is what it's communicating. And when it shows up on the surface, you're disqualified from life from participation in life. And that's what Leviticus 13 instructs about being unclean. Verses 45 and 46 read, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of the head hang loose, shall cover his upper lip, shall cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Get out. Get out. And not only that, you're repugnant. You're not fit to be among us. That's a terrible situation. Can you feel that? Feel the darkness of this man's existence to be excluded from the fellowship. But even more than that, He was excluded from the temple. He couldn't approach God. He couldn't worship God. He couldn't draw near to God with God's people. Have you you known seasons of isolation? Away from friends, family, neighbors, life itself in a sense, isn't it? I mean, you're biologically alive, but you are intensely aware that there is a vital layer of existence that is missing, that you are not a part of. That'd be hard. I mean, even just temporary separations take their toll, don't they? We've had families in the church. One member of the family is in the hospital. The rest of the family's at home limping along. Both parties suffer, don't they, because of the separation. But even worse, to be separated from God 
outside the camp didn't just mean you got to find somewhere else to live. Beloved, the camp was the fellowship of the people of God, and then at the heart of the camp was the tabernacle where fellowship with God took place. To be put out meant to be excluded from that. We got to feel the way they would have felt this. I think we've got some categories for it now, don't we? Maybe once upon a time, we would have foolishly said, well, if I can't go to public worship, if I can't join with God's people for an extended period of time, I'll be fine as long as I have my Bible. Nope. Do you remember that? You remember not being able to join together in worship? It was awful. It was awful, wasn't it? You felt it. You sat down in front of that silly little screen. Try to convince yourself that it was public worship? It wasn't. We're not naive anymore, beloved. To be excluded from the people in the public worship of God is, in a sense, to be excluded from life itself, beloved. That was this man's plight. So you can feel the desperation here. But we're also forced to ask, what really separates us from God and one another? What truly separates us from God and one another? That's what Paul picks up on in Ephesians 2. Beloved, it's not our leprosy. It's not menstruation. Beloved, it's sin. The reality that all of this was working to communicate. That the problem wasn't that when I work out, I sweat and my mother-in-law thinks I'm gross. The problem is that when we exert ourselves, the principle of death, the principle of sin manifests itself, declaring that at a fundamental level, death has embedded itself into our hearts, beloved. We separate things like life and love and death and cruelty, but they would have been much closer connected in the thinking of Scripture As we exert ourselves in cruelty, exert ourselves in selfishness, exert ourselves in self-worship, we show that death is at work in us. We separate ourselves from one another, and stunningly, we're separated from God. That's the picture that Paul paints for us in Ephesians 2, being dead in trespasses and sins, these dividing walls of hostility, clean and unclean, right? Right? Unclean Gentiles, a dividing wall of hostility, clean Jews, but even the Jews knew. Even Israel was told that it wasn't that simple because they were constantly moving in and out of regions of clean and unclean. Simply by virtue of being Israel wasn't enough to make you clean. And all of it set under this reality of being far from God. It's our sin, beloved, that leads us into a sort of exile. Is that what we see in Genesis 3 with the fall? They hide from one another, and they're expelled from the presence of God. It's a desperate condition, the defilement of sin. We're to see ourselves in this leper, beloved. This is not a picture confronting us which leads us to say, oh, how nice for the lepers that there's one who touches them. This is a picture confronting us as those who are defiled in conscience, beloved. 
with no earthly hope of being cleansed at that level, beloved. Unless we see ourselves in this picture, we're not going to be postured to see the wonder of the king here. It's the one who reaches out. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Even if you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a trust that you've seen something of the heinousness which continues to exert itself in your heart, which is ever always so near at hand, ever always vying to show up in the work of your hands, cruelty towards others, disbelief towards God. Beloved, feel our need for cleansing at a level that no soap can reach. I come back from a workout, I can shower, and then my mother-in-law will give me a hug. (laughs) But sin, what shower touches at that level? I trust you know now that there's only one whose blood cleanses conscience, Hebrews 9. So we can mark next Christ's willingness to cleanse. This is the heart of the passage. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The words, I will, come to the fore. Don't miss that. I trust that the Spirit has profiled that for a reason. The great question that he comes with. It's not a doubt about Christ's power. Do you notice that? He doesn't balk at the prospect that he is able. That's not where the hang-up is. He says straightly, you can make me clean. I know that. That's not where the difficulty is. The passage here wants us to see that it's his willingness which takes center stage. He says, if you are willing, mark those words. For this man and for many, The problem isn't whether or not God is able to save. I mean, mark this. There's something here. Maybe it's not for everybody, but it's for some of you. That the question isn't that God is merciful. The question isn't that God shows love. The question is, would you show that to me? Is there something there for you? He said, I have have no problem believing in a merciful God. I have no problem. I have no problem believing in an unfathomable love. None whatsoever. The hang-up is, could it be that I'm the object of that love? 
Could it be that I'm the object of that mercy? Are you willing to cleanse me? There's something there. Hear what he says. I'm willing. I'm willing. I mean, you're tempted to dive into the psychology of this man who's been told is in total, like, get out, get out. You're repugnant, get out. You're revolting, get out, get out, get out. It'd be really tempting to hear that whole reality informing that question, are you willing? Because he's essentially, no, no one else is willing. Like, I get it. Like, I get, I get it. No one wants anything to do with me. I get it. Like, I get it. I've been told that my whole life. Like, I get it. No one wants anything to do with me. I get it. I fail at every turn. I get it. I can't get it together. I get it. I keep falling. I get it. I have more sin in my past than I care to acknowledge. I get it. I get that no one wants anything to do with me. But if you will, if you'll take some interest in me, I will live. If you're willing, he says, I'm willing. I'm willing. They ought to wash over such a soul again. I know not what frame your soul is in. But if that's you, I hope his words come as cleansing waters to you. There is no sin so heinous. There is no failure so great that disqualifies you from these words. I'm willing. And he doesn't just say them. The text goes out of its way to pause, to slow motion, to slow down over this astonishing phrase. And he stretched out his hand and touched him. All three gospels have the exact same phrase, nearly. But they all profile that exact same. It's like a camera zooming in, slowing down. The scene almost stops. The man casts himself down. If you are willing, you can save me. And it says, stretching out his hand, he touched him. Think of the refreshment that comes from a hug, beloved. Think of the nurture for the soul that comes from human touch. You imagine your whole life you've been told you're untouchable. And then this king, he's bowed down. So Matthew doesn't specify it, but this king 
goes down to him. He's already come down from the mountain. The man falls prostrate before Jesus. Jesus goes down to him, touches him, and he says, I will be clean. And he was cleansed. This is a king like no other, beloved. Think about the crowds. Again, we think clean, unclean, and it's like, oh, it's no big deal. The, the purity rites in Israel is silly. It was just silly. It wasn't silly, guys. It was like at the heart of their identity. Remember Daniel? And he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He saw a fundamental line, and it was good and right and had a purpose. This is not a little boundary that Christ crosses here in compassion with his touch. The crowd would have been horrified. You weren't allowed to touch an unclean man because touching him, you became unclean. Not Christ. His holiness trumps this man's uncleanness. It's not the uncleanness which is contagious. It's Christ's purity which is contagious here. He comports himself in courage because undoubtedly the crowd was chirping. That's what the Pharisees did. You eat with who? Whom? You eat with whom? Why, 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 why don't your followers wash their hands? What's with those guys? Already we get the sense that he's going to do this at cost. He's going to say, I don't care what they say or think. I am content to be numbered among the transgressors. I am content to be called a curse to bring true cleansing to a people who are otherwise lost in the wilderness of sin and defilement and exile from God. So is this a one-time cleansing or a way of life? Is this something Christ does once and that's it? You get dirty again after your baptism, you're done? Interestingly, Scripture speaks about both angles, a one-time cleansing, a definitive cleansing. Places like Ephesians 5, actually, in a passage where Paul is instructing husbands and how to comport themselves towards their wives. He writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Or 1 Corinthians 6, the same sort of once-for-all image is given. He details a number of sins Idolaters, adulterers, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. 
You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's a sense there in which the washing that took place in the blood of Christ in the waters of baptism was something definitive. We talk about definitive sanctification if you read about it in the theological literature, meaning it's something that took place once. You were taken out of the realm of uncleanness and you were placed in the register of cleanness. That you were taken out of the realm of darkness and you were placed in the realm of light. And this, by the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've never known Christ, that is the forgiveness and cleansing in which you are of great need. The reality of sin as defilement is a powerful one. People still talk about, I feel dirty. What I did makes me feel dirty. What I said makes me feel dirty. And the dirt is doubled because you realize that what you said, what you did came from you. Nobody made you say those things. Nobody made you do those things. It was you. Take heart because there's one who cleanses beloved at that level. One who's willing to cleanse at that level. What does this man bring? What does this man bring to Christ? Is this some sort of quid pro quo here? I'll give you, you give me. No, it's nothing. It is on your face, in humility, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Christ says, I will. Be clean. If you have not known Christ, that is the cleansing of which you are in need. Make no mistake. Maybe you felt something of it. That ill at easedness at your very core over something you've thought, something you've said, something you've done. Christ and Christ alone can cleanse at the level of conscience. But there are other passages, beloved, which highlight that it is not just once that we need cleansing but rather a fellowship with the fountain who is the cleansing. That's certainly what we read, isn't it? In the very words of comfort that we availed ourselves of this morning. First John chapter one, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Who's he talking to there? Who is we? If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Who is the only group that possibly has a claim to the truth being in them? And what is a manifestation of the truth being in you? He says right here, acknowledging that you have sin, beloved. That's the church. Can you hear it? Am I making that up? Does everybody follow the reasoning? I know I haven't put an illustration in for a while, so I might have lost some of you. But it's right there. If we say, we the church, we as Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Are you deceiving yourselves? 
Do you think that somehow Christ as the one who cleanses is for those foul sinners out there and not you foul sinners in here? If you do, just be careful. Because that's what the Pharisees did. If other people are this person and not you, watch out. John says it so plainly, it slaps you in the face. If we say we have no sin, the truth does not win, is not dwelling in us. Said differently, if the truth is dwelling in you, you acknowledge that you have sin and that there is one who cleanses from sin. That's what he goes on to say. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, they've already experienced that one-time definitive cleansing, and yet he sees an ongoing reality of that cleansing here. You've got to have room for both of those things because Scripture talks about them plainly. But the thing to note here is, There's only one fountain. It's the same one that you're clinging to. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, it is, Lord Jesus, cleanse me. He's the only one who can cleanse. And he's willing, beloved. He's willing. Zechariah 13.1, on that day... There shall be a fountain opened to cleanse from sin and unrighteousness. Beloved, now is that day. And the fountain is the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, beloved. You don't need him once. You need to live planted by the fountain to bathe all your days in his cleansing light and the washing of his word. And mark how it ends. It's kind of striking how it ends. This man just had his life restored to him. He's about to go be reunited with friends and family. I can remember being on a plane back from Ukraine. I hadn't seen my family in over a year. I couldn't have been more excited. I'm going to see them again. I've lived apart for them, from them for so long. I cannot wait to be back in their embrace. Jesus doesn't say go, embrace them. He says go to the temple. You might be tempted to think that this is unkind, right? This is an impediment to the true blessing. Beloved, make no mistake, this is the true blessing. (laughs) The true blessing is that his communion with God is restored. The true blessing is that which sent him far from God has been removed and now he's been brought back near to God. And do you think he has reason for thank-filled worship? Beloved, he does. For God, acting in Christ, has just restored this man to life. There's such a simple motion in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
guilt, grace, gratitude. The worship which that man offered in the subsequent week, this was not a slight worship. This was not a slight journey. They're in Galilee. This is a journey to Jerusalem. This is an eight-day ritual to offer the gift that Moses offered. I bet those eight days were a delight to this man. For he had just been brought back from the dead. And he got to meet with his God face to face, as it were, in the temple of loveliness from which he had been excluded those long years. Beloved, this wasn't a burden before he got to the true blessing of being restored to family. This was the true blessing upon which was layered the loveliness of being restored to family. And so it is for us in our worship. The reason we bring our thanks is not because of all the stuff that God gives us. It's because he's pleased to bring us to himself as his own and commune with us in blessing. Have you marked these mercies to you, beloved? Have you lost something of the wonder of the Son of God who has restored you to clean at no slight cost to himself? Have you lost a wonder that this is what we gather each week to give him thanks over? And what we will enjoy forevermore on the day when he brings us home, when Christ returns. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we do give you thanks for this great gift. Extended in Christ, refresh us in the fountain of this mercy. Strengthen us, Lord, with the drought of this grace. Move our hearts, Lord, to thank-filled worship. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Mm -hmm.